Well, please be seated. You need to be seated. I'm going to just tell you, this is really good today. This, I'm, I'm going to be a little more tied in my notes than I'm used to because I don't want to miss any of this because this you need to be sitting down for. We're going to look at one of the top three uh, chapter verses, things, statements in the Older Testament. As a matter of fact, this section of Scripture is going to be fast-forwarded a thousand years and will be a key to the Gospels, the biographies of Jesus Christ. As a matter of fact, the facts that are found here will be used to validate Jesus as the Messiah. And what we're going to look at today will be fast-forwarded still further till the end of all time and will be used in reference to what God had in store for us all along. So sit down and brace yourself. This is going to be good. We are studying the United Kingdom period. We've been doing that. Um, trying, you know, the promise that God would bring a righteous and courageous king to rule over Israel. It is taking, uh, this is our 10th week. It's taken all of 1 Samuel, and that was about 15 to 17 years of David's life where he's just running and living in caves. Then we got the 2 Samuel, didn't help. We had a seven-year purposeless civil war, and then, boom, here we are. First, or 2 Samuel chapter 6, we finally have David, the undisputed sole king of Israel. And it's as though the narrator says, gun it. Because now the narrative starts going wicked fast. Uh, 2 Samuel chapter 5, first thing David does as the king is he goes and takes a capital city, Jerusalem, that, that city on a hill that belongs to God. To this day, it's still their capital. David took it for the first time. He conquered that. Next thing, he, next thing that happens in the story of, uh, in chapter 5 is another Gentile king, just to honor David and to prove that God was with him, builds him his palace for free. And the third thing that happens in chapter 6 is all the bad guys are done away with, and now there's peace. We have a king. We have a capital. We have peace. In 2 Samuel chapter 6, David looks around and says, we need the ark here. We need the ark. David wanted to exalt God, and this is not the way kings rule. David wanted to make everyone know that it was God that put him there. And the ark had been long forgotten for 50 years. It's in, in somebody's garage. Not to David. David knew when he had peace and when he had that capital, he wanted to bring in the presence of God. The ark is, this, this is the passion of David. This, is, this shows his heart towards God. Because the ark is one of the primary visual aids that we have to show kind of the nature of God, the nature of God being transcendent and holy and different and other. But on the other hand, he's imminent and wants to be with us, that he would dwell with us and he could dwell with us and, he would, and that we could enjoy presence with him. And so Emmanuel, God with us in the ark, and David says, I want the capital to have God with us. And 2 Samuel chapter 6, it does that. And then we're on to 2 Samuel chapter 7. Here it comes. We have peace. We have a king. We have a capital. We have an ark, the presence of God. And David wants more. Look what it says in chapter 7, verse 1. And after the king had settled in his palace, 
and Jehovah had given him rest from all the enemies around him, he said to Nathan the prophet, here I am, living in a house of cedar while the ark of God remains outside, right there in a tent. David wanted to show everyone who was the real king of Israel. David wanted to show the people in Israel and everyone else around that it was God that they trust in for military, for their military. It's it's not the military. They they trust in God to win these battles. It's not political power that they trust in. It's God that does that. It's their fellowship with God, the glory of God, that David wants to show the whole world. And he wants to do this by building a temple. He wants to put it on the highest part of the hill. He wants the world to see that God rules Israel. That's a great idea. What's interesting is there's two rather strange responses to David's request. The first one is God says, no, (laughs) you can't build the temple. And two, God will give him a covenant. Let's look at those two answers. The first one is God says, no. But that night, the word of the Lord, uh, word of Jehovah came to Nathan saying, go and tell my servant David, this is what Jehovah says. Are you the one to build the house to dwell, for me to dwell in? I've not dwelt in a house from the day I was brought out, uh, the Israelites, up from out of Egypt uh, to this day. I've been moving from place to place with the tent as my dwelling. Whenever I moved with, uh, wherever I moved with the Israelites, did I ever say to any of the rulers, whom commanded to shepherd my people of Israel, why have you not built me a house of cedar? God says, I'm Emmanuel. I'm God with you. And when you guys were moving around the desert and trying to conquer the land and all those things, I'm okay with moving around with you. He says, you haven't settled peacefully enough and you're the warrior king. I don't want you to build the temple. I'll let someone who's peaceful, maybe Solomon, whose name means peace. I'll let him do that. So he says no. And then here it comes, the Davidic covenant. This is what we're going to look at now is the Davidic covenant. And now a covenant in the, in the Bible is a promise. It's actually more, more like a formal contract, formal promise from God. Okay? And these covenants in the Bible, they, they are the lamps that guide us. They are the North Star so that we know where we are. They are uh, a, a a magnetic pole so we know how to get home. They're a lighthouse that keep us from danger when we're in storms of life. Coven- understanding covenants, you understand the whole plan for humanity that's been rolled out by God. And that, these covenants, is why we teach the Bible here. That's how important they are. That's why we teach the Bible. Now, there's different types of covenants. It's important to know this because this makes a big difference. There are um, unilateral and bilateral covenants Unilateral is what we're going to look at today. Only one person is going to be making promise, uni. God will be the only one making a promise. In addition to being unilateral and bilateral covenants, they're also unconditional and conditional covenants. Unconditional covenants mean you don't have to do anything to receive what's promised you. That's what we're going to look at today. A unilateral, God only is doing the promising, unconditional. There's nothing you have to do to receive it, David just takes this unilateral, unconditional covenant. This is extremely important for us because this is the template by which our salvation covenant is built upon. Our salvation covenant is unilateral. God does the promising. Unconditional. It's not up to us. And in this, let me just summarize the Davidic covenant. He's going to promise David, okay, that his descendants will have an eternal kingship. He will generously and unconditionally, he will say, I swear to myself, God will say, I swear to myself, regardless of merit, 
I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make this happen, David. And there is nothing that can stop this from happening. Not death, not sin, not time. And God is very specifically going to go and, look and say, I'm going to make this happen. And death and sin and time can't stop this. And so this is the introduction of the covenant in the first few verses of chapter 7. It says, and now tell your servant David, this is Nathan still speaking, this is what Jehovah Almighty says. I took you from the pastures, from tending the the flocks, and I appointed you ruler over all my people. I made you great. I'm going to make you greater. Verse 9, I have been with you wherever you have gone, and I have cut off all the enemies from before you, and now I will make your name great. Like the, like the names of the greatest men on earth. And death can't stop this from happening. The next verse says that Jehovah declares to you that Jehovah himself will establish a house for you. When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, when you're dead, I'll still be committing the, keeping the promises. I will ri- raise up uh, your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and your own blood, and will establish his kingdom. And he... Uh, is the one who will build the house in my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. There will be an eternal throne, and it'll be through you after you're long dead. Death won't keep this from happening. Next thing he says, it's He's going to say even sin can't because, again, Solomon will sin, but he says, and other descendants of David, but verse 14, it says, and I will be his father, and he will be my son, and when he does wrong, I will punish him. My love will never be taken away from him. Death can't do it. Sin can't do it. Even time can't stop it because this is a unilateral, unconditional promise that God is making. And so this is the key to the passage of the, of the whole covenant. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before man, before me, and your throne will be established forever. It will endure forever. It will be established forever. Here's what's happened. David said, God, I want to build you a house. And God said, no, you can't, but I'm going to build you one. And when he says, David, I'm going to build you a house, He's saying, I'm going to build you into the part of the eternal kingdom. I'm going to make you part of this eternal kingdom. Now, what's the eternal kingdom? Well, the eternal kingdom is the entire plot line of all of history. It's the story that's going throughout the entire Bible. The eternal kingdom is what answers the fundamental existential questions that we all have. Where am I from? Why am I here? Where am I going? Eternal, the eternal kingdom answers those questions. God created, par, you know, paradise. He created, when he created creation, it, it was paradise. And then we ruined it in our rebellion against God. And then since then, because of the darkness of sin and the contamination in the way it warps things, that's when the plan started where he said, I will fix this because I am the only one that can fix this. And his promise is this. I will bring a great king that will conquer evil and will rule in righteousness. That is the plan. Of e- the plan of redemption is this eternal kingdom. And then he says that originally with Adam, right after the sin. It's called the Adamic covenant. And then it is clarified in two other covenants with Adam 
or Abraham. They are unilateral. They are unconditional. And now David sees what's happening. He's being folded in with more clarity still that one of his descendants will not be a king. He will be the king. He will not have a kingdom. He will have the eternal kingdom. David knows that. He realizes he's part of that now. And here's how he responds. Nathan reported to David all the words of this entire revelation. And then David went in and he sat down. He just sat down. He sat down before the Lord. That's what you do when the Lord overwhelms you with unconditional, unrelenting promises of grace. You sit down in his presence and let it sit. Oh, let's go. And here's what he says. See if you can see a a repeated phrase. Who am I, O sovereign Jehovah? And what is my family that that, that you have brought me this far? And as if, if that were not enough in your sight, O sovereign Jehovah, you've also spoken about the future of my house, of, your, of the house of a servant, and, and this decree, O sovereign Jehovah. Is, is, for, is, is this sort of thing, is this decree for a mere human? What, does, what, what can David say to you? For you know your servant, servant O sovereign Jehovah. For the sake of your word, you're making this promise, according to your will, the promise of this covenant, you have done this great thing and made it known to your servant. You see the repeated phrase, O sovereign Jehovah. He will say this. We can't go into the details of the prayer. He will say it eight times in this short prayer. And a couple times he'll break from O sovereign Jehovah to say Jehovah Almighty the one who rules. And so what is it about David's response to being enveloped into this unilateral, unconditional covenant that he, want, that he knows that we should know? What does it mean, O sovereign Jehovah? What does it mean to be sovereign like he's referring to? The Bible says that God is above all things. He's before all things. He is the Alpha and the Omega. It says in the Bible that God created all things. He holds all things together in heaven and on earth, the visible and in the, invis- and the invisible. He knows all things. God, in his sovereignty, knows the past and the present and the future, and he can do all things. O sovereign Jehovah, here's what it means to us, that God has a plan and he has the power to make the plan work. He has a plan for an eternal kingdom. And it's not a hope for God. It will happen because, it, because he can make it happen. And the plan has been promised, and it was promised to Adam, and it was promised to Abraham at least twice, and then now it's promised to David. It is unilateral. God's the only one making this promise. It is unconditional. Nothing needs to be done by the, perp- by the person. And I want to show you how important this is. This Davidic covenant, this Davidic line of being not a king but the king, the very first sentence in the New Testament, the biography that is written to Jews, Matthew chapter 1 verse 1 reads this way, this is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. 
Do you, do you, do you realize Matthew, the Jew, what he's saying? He's saying there's a plan and the plan's working. It's happening. God has a, the power and he's bringing about his eternal kingdom. Oh, sovereign Jehovah. Now, what difference does that make in our lives? If we had the value of God's attribute of sovereignty, the way David understands this, oh, sovereign Jehovah, how would it show up? I can think of three ways. It shows up in real life. Eight times he says, oh, sovereign Jehovah. It means a lot to him. The first one is you trust and not worry. You trust and you don't worry. Because what... You're, you're trusting in the promises of God and the sovereignty of God being able to do this. And this, these, this promise of an eternal kingdom, it is, it is, is not individual. It's, it's, it's for everything. And so if you, if, you look at, if you look at Jesus, okay, Jesus is that eternal king. If you look at Jesus merely as a savior, you're missing it. If Jesus is merely a savior, then the, his identity is entirely too individualistic. It's too focused on a person, probably you. But, but when, when David thinks of Jesus, when, when we talk about him being a sovereign king, we're talking about him, Jesus, being fulfilling the role as a sovereign warrior king. Now, it's mentioned throughout the prayer and the, actually through the covenant that we can't go into the details, but this is what the warrior king this is what a king does, and this is what God promises in the covenant, which was fulfilled then and will be fulfilled later. This is what kingdoms, kings do. They bring rest to their kingdom. They bring justice. They, they bring peace, and they bring prosperity to everybody they rule if they have the power to do it. And this King Jesus, he has the power to do that. And so the resurrection, think of it this way. The resurrection is not merely proof that Jesus is fulfilling the promises that he made about salvation. The resurrection is proof of all the fulfillment of the promises made to Adam and Abraham, the son of Abraham and the son of David. All these covenant promises are coming to fruition. This, this son of Mary, born in a manger, it's all going to happen. It's certain to happen. Okay, picture it like this. It's almost easier to see it this way. The resurrection is proof of so much more. Okay, Friday, Good Friday through Resurrection Sunday. This is what happened. The great dragon death, the one who, who, who steals the thief of all things precious to us, the monster that has no master, on Friday, the dragon was finally slain. Jesus killed that dragon by putting up himself as ransom to the holiness of God so that the traitors, you and me, could be renewed to the kingdom and be freed. And then on Saturday, he went into the dragon's lair itself to announce to those men and women who had placed faith in that future king that he had He's here, he's alive, and he has killed that dragon. He announces that. He announces his reign, and they are set free. And now, this day, here's what we do. We have the courage of a five-year-old boy 
who hides behind the blood-rusted armor of their king. And we peek around King Jesus with his bloody sword, and we say, yeah, death, where's your victory now? Come on, death, where's your sting? Got to get back behind Jesus. We know it's true. Death is dead. That dragon is slain. Still scares us. Just laying there, dead. He promised it. He made it happen. It's true. All those promises are true. And we're not to worry. Ultimate worry, real worry, is a person that believes that either one, they've got a better plan for the world, they don't like the way God's ruling it, or they don't know if God is in charge. There's no place for real worry in the eternal kingdom. Not if you believe in, oh, sovereign Jehovah. Not if you believe in the plan of King Jesus. The second thing is obedience, not rebellion. Not just trust, but obedience, not rebellion. It's King Jesus. King Jesus. Obedience is unconditional. You hear people say, oh, I tried Christianity. It didn't work. Oh, really? Did you try the Christianity where Jesus was king? That one? You want him to be king for two reasons. Because you want unconditional obedience. It's easier. And two, kings give rewards. They're looking for heroes. They're looking for someone to reward. Look, look what... You tell me, if this isn't the words of a king, the first sentence in the book of Matthew, the gospel of the Jews, and the last sentence in the gospel of Matthew, the gospel of the biography to Jews, here's what it says. And then Jesus came to them and said, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Yeah, because he's a king. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything that I've commanded you. And surely I'll be with you even to the end of this age because it's an eternal kingdom. To the end of this age, Emmanuel, God with us. He's a king, and he's watching, and he wants to give out crowns. Obedience. He wants to tell you this. Obedience is worth it in his kingdom. Trust, obedience, joy. Oh, sovereign Jehovah. This is your rule. Sorrow, or the last one is joy with our sorrow. When you have a king that's eternal and it's Jesus and he's sovereign over all things, then you live a life with expectations. The expectations are of promises that you know will be true. And so even in our sorrow, right, even in our sorrow we have joy. That's why it says in Thessalonians, brothers and sisters, we do not uh, I, uh, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who are asleep in death so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. They don't know about the eternal promises of God. They don't know about King Jesus. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again, just like he promised, so that we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep with him according to God's word. That's why we study the Bible here. According to his promises, for the Lord himself will return in heaven 
from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of an archangel, and the trumpet will call from God himself, and the dead will rise. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Don't grieve like you don't know the plan. Don't grieve like you don't think he can pull off the plan. He's, oh, sovereign Jehovah. He has a plan, and he will do that plan. He will rule an eternal kingdom. How does this even work? How does this make a difference? I'm going to get very, I'm going to try to get very practical. Like, how does it play itself out in our lives? How do, how do we feel about the hardships of life, the difficulties of life, the confusion that is all around us? How then shall we live? Let me play you a video, but okay, just humor me for just a second, okay? Because this video will help you in a regular daily living learn how to trust and obey and live with joy and sorrow. You're going to love, some of you are going to love this video. Play the video. Where it is third down and five. They can get a first down if they can get to the four. But they've only got 30 seconds left. Up to the Trojan defense now to preserve the streak. Incomplete. That was a good defensive play on Lima Swede. Fourth and five, the national championship on the line right here. Now, I'm not playing this video because I went to the University of Texas. Uh, we actually looked for when Texas A&M played for the national championship, but we couldn't find that video. <laughs> what? No, no, whoops. Um, uh, th there are other universities, but are there really? And I'm not playing this video just because I went to the University of Texas, and I'm just trying to remember a time when it wasn't a building year. I hope everyone has been equally offended now. Are we good? All right. Everybody settle down. Come back to me. Let's try to understand the Bible, believe it or not, in this video clip. I want everybody to pretend to be a longhorn for just a few minutes, okay? Because this might make sense in just a few seconds. Okay? Try to be a longhorn for just a a little while, okay. When you watch this video, like right now, as a Longhorn, how many of y'all are excited? Come on. How many are excited? Come on. It's, I mean, listen, good defeated evil. That was USC, okay? <laughs> that was a great day for righteousness, okay? I, how many of you remember where you were when this happened? June, or January 4th, 2006. Yeah, I remember. Okay, now, how many of you watching it now are scared? You know, worried, nervous, anyone? No? Anybody remember January 4th? Was it? Yeah, where you were nervous or scared then? Anyone? All you longhorns, even fake longhorns for the moment? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Well, now there's no need to worry. Does anyone want to bet me on the outcome of this video and I get the horns? I'll bet a million dollars. Anyone? I owe Sovereign Matt 
I don't mean to be disrespectful, okay, but oh, sovereign Matt, I promise you that the University of Texas at Austin will win the national championship in 2006 by defeating the evil USC Trojans in a most humiliating way. Boom. You know why I can say that? Because it's history. I mean, I'm not saying, I mean, listen, did you hear that? I can say that because it's history. And so it's certain and it's fixed. Oh, sovereign Jehovah. To him, everything is history. That's what it means. Oh, sovereign Yahweh, everything is fixed. In his providential will, everything is certain. Oh, but those promises were a long time ago. Oh, okay, does time affect the credibility and the power of God? I wonder how many people said to Mary and Joseph, Oh, this is the one, the descendant of David, the seed of David, the part of the promise. That promise is a thousand years old, kids. Does time dilute the promises of God? No, it does not. To trust and obedience and joy with sorrow are products, or should I say byproducts, of having confidence in, oh, sovereign Jehovah. The greater you understand his sovereignty, that that he made promises and will keep these promises, the greater you can live in obedience and in trust and in joy. (laughs) And here's how you do that. It's all history to Jehovah. That's what it means to be sovereign. (laughs) We call it the book of Revelation. We tag it as a genre of prophecy. It's a history book, friends. It's, it's, it's already been done. Hey, look, look, we're stuck at the train stop, at, at the train crossing, and we're just seeing cars go by, and we see them one at a time. God sees the whole train all at once. The last car, he says, is green because he saw the last car, so the last car will be green. It has to be green. That's what it means to be in the providential will of God. It will happen. It must happen because it's already happened. The eternal kingdom, it's come already. It will happen like Vince Young is going to run across this goal line. Play the tape. Fourth and five, the national championship on the line right here. He's going for the corner. Now, come on. It happened because it had to happen because it's already happened. So how then shall we live with O sovereign God? How do we live knowing how do we act and live and feel? How do we play that out in life? Could I show you, looking at the last book of history, the last book of the Bible, the, the book we call Revelation, the book we call Prophecy, could I tell you, I'm going to show you three references where David is cited, this covenant is cited, to show you how to live trusting and with obedience and with joy. Because, friends, the game's over. It has already been won. This is our king 
ruling his eternal kingdom. David's covenant in Revelation. Obedience. Here's what the king says. Remember what, remember obedience? That he is king and we do what he says and he rewards those who follow him. He's looking around to give out crowns. Chapter 3, I'll just read these if you forgive me. Um, Chapter 3, verse 5 says, The one who is victorious will, like them, be dressed in all white, and I will never blot out a name of the person that is in the book of life, but I will acknowledge that name before my Father and the angels. That's you. He will acknowledge you. Whoever has ears, let them hear. For the Spirit says to the churches, and to the angel of the church of Philadelphia, he says this, These are the words of him who is holy and true, who holds the key of David. What he opens, no one can shut. What he shuts, no one can open. I know your deeds. I know your deeds. I know that you had little strength, and yet you kept my word, obeyed, and have not denied my name. Does this sound like a king? And I will take those who are liars and who persecuted you, and I will make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I love you. That's our king. That's our king ruling his eternal kingdom. I know that verse. I've memorized it. Do you live like you believe it? In obedience. Trust, judgment, justice, peace. Here's the king, Revelation chapter 5. But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside. And I wept because no one could be found who was worthy to open the scrolls and look inside. And no one, none of the elders, and then one of the elders said to me, Do not weep for the lion from the tribe of Judah, the root of David has triumphed. He has slaughtered that dragon. He is able to open the scrolls and the seven seals. And then I saw the lamb looking as if he had been slain, standing at the center of the throne, encircled with the four living creatures and all of the elders. And the lamb went and he took the scroll from the right hand of him. And then he sat down on that throne. That's our king reigning in the eternal kingdom. And there is no suffering and there is no injustice and there's no disadvantages and there, there's no birth defects. There is no orphans. There's no hunger. There is no death. There's only righteousness. We need to act and live and feel the game is over. It's already been won. This is what it looks like. We should not just believe this, but act on it. That we might live in obedience, that we might be trusting, and then finally that we would have joy in our sorrow. And David sat down. He knew what he was hearing. The last chapter, the last chapter in the Bible, the last word, the final car in the train, the book that he, he sees his history from Adam to Abraham to David, 22. Blessed are those who wash their robes 
that they may have the right to the tree of life. Remember, we were denied that. The tree of life and may go through the gates into that city. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to give testimony to the churches. That's us. I am the root and the offspring of David. I am the morning star. The spirit and the bride, that's us. The bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty for the living water, the free gift of the water of life, say, come. That's our king. That's him ruling the eternal kingdom. He's my king. Is he your king? You have to trust, like we were singing about it, in what he did and who he said he was. He said he was from Abraham and from David. He said he was the Messiah, the promised one. He said he was sent by God, God's only son, not to just save, but to rule because he's a king. He made that promise. Have you received that promise? Are you trusting in anything but what he promised you? It's an unconditional, unilateral promise. You don't say anything. You just receive it. If you believe in what he did, that he died for your sins and was raised for righteousness, and that he is, has all the authority in heaven and earth to rule, if that's your story, you're, you're part of that. And in that covenant, he takes your shame and replaces it with honor. He takes your weakness and gives you the power of his spirit. He takes your guilt and gives you his righteousness. And then, like he always does, God with us, he seals the spirit of God in your soul. That's a promise. That's our king. Reigning his eternal kingdom now and forevermore. That's a good passage. I told you. Let's pray. Our Father, who's in heaven, oh, how holy is your name. Oh, sovereign God, thy kingdom come and thy will be done in my life now as it will be in heaven. God, let your son be king in my actions, my will, my heart, my soul. For thine is the kingdom, for thine is the power, and thine is the glory forever and ever. And everybody said, amen. That's good stuff.